Well, God bless you and welcome to NETS 3, Stewards of the Mysteries of God. This is session 9, The Hope of Eternity. Well, blessings to you. Tonight I wanted to look at the subject I call the hope of eternity. Now in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, it says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. The Holy Spirit will oblige us by pulling down the strongholds in our minds only if we will allow Him. Through revelation and prophecy and interpretation, He will reveal the truths in Scripture. He will reveal the mysteries to us. He will unveil things to us that are presently covered. It's amazing that I have actually had numerous times when I have prophesied things that went against my own beliefs. I prophesied things that went against my own doctrines that I'd held. And yet, having to take that prophecy then and go back and search the Scriptures, because I, obviously the Scriptures are a more sure word of prophecy. But in every single situation where I prophesied something that was different than my own doctrine, upon going to the Scriptures to search it more diligently, I always found that the Spirit was correct and my understanding was incomplete. So I changed my... Doctrine. Sometimes humbly changed my doctrines because sometimes I had been teaching the things that I now didn't believe because I had been taught them. <laughs> but the Holy Spirit is the one that wrote the Scriptures and He does still remember what they say. And He understands what is in there, even the mysteries that are hidden to us. But if we'll search them out, He will reveal things to us. But if we'll allow Him to guide us, He will take down the strongholds that are in our minds that keep us from seeing clearly what is clearly set before us. A stronghold is simply something which we believe to be true, which is not. And the things that we believe to be true, we act upon. We make our decisions based upon the things which we hold true in our hearts. Now, we may hold certain things to be true in our hearts and may act upon them if they're not true, however, we're going to receive the results of acting on falsehoods. The world is full of falsehoods. Those that believe that they can be saved by being good. That in the end we're going to be judged on our works, so therefore that's the only thing that matters is the good works that we've done are going to have a surprise. That's a stronghold that's rampant around the world. We've talked about that in the past, the religion of works versus the religion of grace. The stronghold of being good enough. Sometimes we still have that stronghold in our actions, even though we might understand better. When that comes down, when that truly is taken down, and we understand we're never going to be good enough, and that what we do has to be done in Christ for it to be acceptable, things begin to change in our actions. Things begin to change in what we bring before the Lord and what He is able to receive. Strongholds concerning eternity may have eternal consequences. So it's very important for us to allow the Lord to go through our beliefs from time to time and work with us on the things that we hold dear and that we hold so near and allow Him to show us the things that are eternal and the things that aren't eternal. Now, He won't do it all at once. We can only do this a little at a time, and he's willing to do that with us. 
as we've said before, he is just as interested in the process as he is in the end product. He wants to work with you as a fellow laborer. He wants to take it a step at a time and pull down these things in order or in their course so that we can grow in strength and be prepared for the things that are next ahead for us. We do have an effect on our state in eternity by how we live now. And how we live now is affected by the beliefs that we hold, including the strongholds that we have. Now I'd like you to look in Mark chapter 13. And we'll begin in verse 32. And it says, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now what day and hour is it speaking of? It's speaking of the day and hour when the Lord will come for His church. Now, we understand that, and we understand that there's a time coming when He'll be coming back for us. Those that are on the earth, those that are alive and remain, will be caught up in the air. Those that are asleep in Christ Jesus will precede them and meet Him in the air also. Now, we'd like to know when that time would be, wouldn't we? People have been trying to guess almost since He left. The devil would love to know. But it says right here, not even the sun knows. Not even the angels know. Anyone who has ever guessed up until now has been wrong. If you were to hear someone say, the Lord is coming back on such and such a day, you could be assured He's not coming back on that day. Because no man knows the day or the hour. Now, He did say for us to know the seasons. And it is available for us to know the seasons. Verse 33, Take heed, watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is. He didn't say, take heed, watch and pray, because most of you don't know when the time is. He said, none of you know. It is like a man going to a far journey, who left his house and gave authority to his servants, and to each his work, and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Now this parable is given as an example of what it is like in the kingdom now, there's a man going to a far country. He's living his house with some servants. They're each assigned their work. And then they each have a time to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming. In the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning. Lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And I say to you, I say to all, watch. Now, what are we to watch for? Now, most of us would probably say that we're to watch for the master. Well, he says the kingdom is like a man going to a far country and leaving his house under servants. We are to be those servants. We're to grow to the place that we can be trusted with his house. We know that his house is the body of Christ now. So we should be in a position where we can be trusted with the body of Christ, that we would be household servants, bond servants that could be trusted with the master's goods, that we would watch over it to the point that when he came back, it would be in even better shape than when he left. But most of us would say, and I think we probably experienced this in the body of Christ, that we're watching now for the Lord to come. But if you were put over let's say, a, a castle, and you were a watchman, 
Now, what would you be watching for if you were on the walls? You're watching for the enemy who would try to sneak in at night. Now, if you are watching for the enemy and the master comes back with all his horsemen and all his banners, aren't you going to notice? But the fact that we've been so busy watching for the Lord to come, we've been missing the thief sneaking in the door or in the window. And the true watchman is the guard who is watching to keep the house secure. So while we're standing here looking for the Lord to return from heaven, sometimes the enemy of our Lord is sneaking into the house and doing things in that house that we as stewards and as watchmen will be held in account for. We should be watching, eyes open, when we're on shift, so to speak. And while we're on shift, we are responsible for the things that happen in his household. If we're only watching for the Lord to return, and we're not watching for the things that the enemy is trying to do, we will then be held accountable for the things that happen on our watch, won't we? What is the hope that we have? Is it the return of Christ? Is it the gathering together? Is it the rapture? It's none of these. When the Lord gives us parables, they are not to be taken literally, but they are given to teach us deeper truths. And We are all given the command to watch and to do our work. To help us, He also sent His servant, the Holy Spirit. Number one, He gave each His work. In Romans chapter 12, verse 6, it says, Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. That's our work. The things that the Lord has placed within us to utilize our gifts to bless others, to serve one another in love. And number two, He commanded each one to watch. We've got to keep the house secure, to watch for the intruders. Have you ever met someone, perhaps in the workplace, who was very good at watching for the boss? That type of person generally wasn't a good worker. They were the type of person that was adept at keeping things maybe spread out on their desk or spread out in the workplace in such a way that when they saw or heard the boss coming, they could all of a sudden appear to be working. But really, you knew they weren't accomplishing as much as they could because they were watching for the boss to come. In a sense, that's what many of us have done in the body of Christ. We have not done as much in the household as we could because we're just watching for the Lord to come, hoping that He'll come and relieve us from the work. Whereas there are those that really believe in the hope of eternity, that have it such in their hearts that they know they're not going to miss it when He comes, so they've got things that they can do, knowing that they'll be rewarded for the labor that they put forth now, that is good labor, that is making the household better, so that when the boss comes back, he will see the progress that's been made in his absence. Those who are doing their work, when the boss shows up, it will be a blessing for both of them. Now, I was taught that I would be rewarded for hoping for his return. And I was given a scripture, which we'll look at here shortly, to approve this. 
But I was taught that there was special rewards that came to those that had the hope of his return so strong in their heart that each day they would seek his return. We would be looking for it. We would be desiring it to this day, you know, that it would happen this day. Well, I found out this is not necessarily scriptural. And the fruit of it is that we're like that worker who's always watching for the boss but not doing the work. We're really hoping that he'll get us out of the work. We know it's going to be better after he comes, so therefore, why put so much effort into what we're doing now? These are strongholds that we see being operated in the body of Christ. I saw them in my life, but I thought I was doing the right thing because I was taught that I would be rewarded for hoping that he would come back. Now, I know he's going to come, but so does the devil, and he will not be rewarded for knowing that. And he will not be rewarded when he comes. I want to be rewarded when he comes. Well, you know, I wasn't really looking for an answer in this area because I thought I knew the right thing. I thought and I also taught that the hope of the return would bring rewards. But one day, the Lord spoke to me. And he said to me audibly, the hope of the return is a false hope. Now, I wasn't asking for any information about the return. I thought I understood it. It came totally unrelated to anything I was doing. But because it was audible and therefore had such impact on me, I couldn't deny what the Lord had just said, even though it totally contradicted everything I had been taught and everything I believed about His return up to that moment. Well, the Bible says to try the spirits. Now, even though I knew His voice, I still had the responsibility to go back to Scripture. Because if it truly is the Lord, then it's got to stand up to Scripture, doesn't it? So what I did was I went to the Scripture and I began to study what could that mean? It certainly couldn't mean what it sounded like it meant. Well, first thing I did was I went to the Scripture to see how many times it talked about the hope of the return. I found out it's not in there once. So then I just tried to find the return of Christ. I found out it's not in there once. That shocked me. That's why I think it took the Lord to come speak to me audibly because this was so strong in my belief system that I needed something like that to shock me to the point. If it had come as a whisper, I would have probably set it aside. But once he came, I was responsible then to go back to Scripture and find out what did he mean. Well, let's look at this a little bit. In John chapter 14, Jesus is speaking to his followers shortly before he leaves. He says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. Now, I read that and I thought, Lord, now that sounds like the return. But I had to admit it wasn't the word return. I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. And I will pray the Father, and He will give you another helper. This is the comforter, the advocate, 
that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you a little while longer, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. Verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice, because I said I am going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe. Now, as I read that, I thought, well, Lord, it is interesting that the word return is not used here, but it certainly says you're going to go and come again. Now, that sounds like a return. And I began to look, and the first thing that came into my spirit is one of the principles that we've learned here in the NETS course is that we need to look at the context. And what is the context in John 14? He is describing to them what is going to happen not many days hence on the day of Pentecost. He is going to leave. And we know Shortly after this, he left. He went up. They saw him go. And then what was being described here in John 14 was going to come to pass on the day of Pentecost. And he says, I'm telling you now, so when it comes to pass, you'll believe. But look at some of the things he says here. Verse 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, because of my stronghold of believing that the Lord had gone away and needed to return, so therefore, when I read that, I will come again and receive you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. I'm thinking, he's going to go prepare a place, and thousands of years later, they would be with him also. And he says in verse 4, And where I go, you know, and you, the way you know. Now, wait a minute. If they're not going to be going for a few thousand years, how come he's saying you know the way to where I'm going? And the Helper's going to help you along the way. He's going to be dwelling in you. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now, let's say you were an orphan and you were adopted. And your adopted father says to you, I'm not going to leave you as an orphan. I'm going to come visit you. And then you don't see him again for the rest of your earthly life. Would that be a real great promise? Would that be a real good mentor? When he said, I will come to you, my stronghold kept me from seeing what it says. I will come to you. Not I will return. It means something very, very different. It shocked me. And then he says, a little while longer, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Does he say the world will see me no more, but after a few thousand years you'll see me? Well, after a few thousand years, the world will see him when he judges the world. So it couldn't be speaking of that. 
Because at the judgment, they're all going to see Him and bow down before Him. It's talking about the time while we're on earth, that the world will no longer see Him like they did when He was on earth. But we, those that have received the Holy Spirit, would see Him. Verse 28, then it says, I am going away and I'm coming back to you. That could mean something very, very different than I'm going away for a long time and then I'm going to return and gather everyone to myself. I do believe in that. But I believe the Lord was showing me something very different that I was missing because of the stronghold I had received and held as so important in my doctrinal thinking and beliefs. 1 John 2.1 says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now that word advocate is the same word that we saw back in John 14, 16. I will give you another helper, the comforter, the advocate, the Holy Spirit. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He's going to help you. He's going to draw you to me. But John is also saying here in 1 John that when you sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Is He present? Does He have to be available to us in order to be an advocate when we sin? In the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, when someone sinned and they would bring a sacrifice for sin, they would bring it to the high priest or bring it to a priest. And then he would make intercession for them. We have a high priest also now, Jesus Christ the righteous. See, when we use the word or the term, the return of Christ, we are establishing a stronghold. And we are strengthening a stronghold in our minds that Jesus is not present now. That He left and He needs to return. Now we know He left. He said He was going. But He said, I'll come again. I won't leave you as orphans. And the context of when He said He would come again was the day of Pentecost. And He said, the world will see Me no more, but you will see Me. When? When I send you the Helper, He will then begin to lead you to Me. Not many thousands of years hence, but from that day forward it will be available for Him to lead you to Me, and you can see Me. John uh, chapter 16, beginning in verse 12. Again, we're reading the words of Jesus before He ascended. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will tell you of things to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take of what is Mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are Mine. Therefore I said that He will take of Mine and declare it to you. A little while, and you will not see Me. Again a little while, and you will see Me, because I go to the Father. Now how could that first little while just be between now when He's speaking and when He ascended up from the Mount of Olives, and yet the second little while be thousands of years? That wouldn't make any sense. He said, in a little while, you're not going to see me because I'm going. But then, in a little while, I'm going to be back. Then some of his disciples said among themselves, What is this he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again a little while, and you will see me. 
and because I go to the Father. Verse 19, Jesus knew that they desired to ask him, and he said to them, Are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said a little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? I was just asking that same question myself. (laughs) Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. When? Pentecost. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that the human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. Because of my stronghold, when I read, I will see you again, I thought it meant, bye-bye, see you in a couple thousand years. When I bring everybody to heaven, or, you know, whenever you die. That's not what he said at all. Because if you'll see, he says, hey, you guys are wondering about what I just said, aren't you? They were wondering. (laughs) So are we. So when he said, look, you guys are going to sorrow for a while, and the world will rejoice, I'm going to leave for a little while, but then in a little while longer, I'll be back. This is a powerful message, which I could have never seen had I kept that stronghold of the return. A misunderstanding, probably with good intentions, to teach us that the Lord is going to come and gather us together, but by changing it a little bit, whether knowledgeably or not, it was changed a little bit from what it says in Scripture, and therefore it cut me off from receiving tremendous authority and power that he wants me and you to receive. In Acts chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it says, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and to teach, until the day which he was taken up. Now, Luke wrote the book of Acts, and Luke also wrote the book of Luke. The book of Luke ends just before the ascension of Jesus, and the book of Acts begins on the day of the ascension. So the one picks up where the other leaves off. And that's what he's saying here. Until the day which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. He was taken up after he gave these commandments through the Holy Spirit. Now I was reading that, and I thought, why on earth, when Jesus was on earth, would he need the Holy Spirit in order to give commandments to his apostles? He's right there. After Jesus was baptized, where he was, the Holy Spirit was present. After Pentecost, the Holy Spirit prepares the way for the presence of the Lord. John chapter 7, verse 38 and 39. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow the rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, we have already read that he said, the Spirit is with you, but he will be in you. So the Holy Spirit was already present. When Jesus was present, the Holy Spirit was present. From the time he was baptized and descended upon him. But 
it came in a different fashion on the day of Pentecost. It no longer was just with us or among us, but He came into us. And He didn't just come in a measure, but He came in the fullness of Christ. And as we've seen, He came not just as Holy Spirit, but as the Spirit of the Resurrection. Something that the prophets of old couldn't comprehend. Something that the angels desired to look into but could not receive. Something that is more powerful than anything that the world could ever comprehend. Something that we as the church have not even begun to understand or to walk in. And yet, when he was glorified and sat down at the right hand of God, then he was able to give the spirit of the resurrection into us without measure and then from that day until now it has been available for the Lord Jesus to come to his church Acts chapter 1 verses 10 and 11 and while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up behold two men stood by them in white apparel who also said men of Galilee why do you stand gazing up into heaven this same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go. It says, why do you stand here gazing into heaven? I would probably suggest that had I been there, I would be doing the same thing. Because here was Jesus speaking to all of us on the mountaintop, and he is now taken up into heaven I would watch him go. But he has just given us instructions saying, go to Jerusalem and wait where you're going to receive power from on high. Now he's just left. We're standing here looking into heaven and right away two men are there saying, why are you standing here gazing into heaven? Didn't Jesus tell you to go back there and receive the power? He hasn't been gone a few seconds and the first reproof already comes. And I think it's very important reproof because I think for the last 2,000 years, probably this reproof could be brought to the majority of the body of Christ in that we're still standing here gazing into heaven when he has said, go get the power and preach the gospel and take it out to all the nations. I think that's why he brought it so quickly. When we stand gazing into heaven, we are not watching over his household as a steward should. We are not utilizing our gifts to the fullest. We are not watching and protecting his household, but rather we are spending our time gazing into Never Never Land, hoping for something that is not promised to us. Why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come. Not will return, but will so come. Now, how is he going to come? The way they were speaking, he says, he will so come in like manner. They saw him go in the clouds, he's going to come in the clouds. But we also know from Jesus and the things he's spoken, that from Pentecost till now, there are other ways that he can come to us. That we can see him, and we don't have to wait for the day when he comes back in the clouds, like that time when he left. Is that still going to happen? Amen it is. But has Jesus ever limited himself to that? Did he say, I'm going and I will return this way? Did those men standing there say, he's gone now, but he will return someday? No, they said, he's gone, go do what you're told. He will come back in the way you've seen him go. In the very next verse 
Acts chapter 1, verse 12, it says, And they returned to Jerusalem. So God does have the word return in His vocabulary, and He can use it when He chooses to. The word for come here is the word erkamai. The word for return is the word hupostrepho. They're not even related words. It's not my purpose to go at this time into the differences of the meanings of those words. But just so you understand, there is a big difference. When we understand it clearly, we open up the doors for some great blessings from heaven that we have not been able to receive because of strongholds which we formerly held. Simply by not having the correct word that is used in Scripture that God used for a reason. They returned to Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 2, verse 20, you'll see the, the word again, Erkamai. It says, The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Now there is a coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. That's not necessarily the day that He comes for His church. And that's not necessarily the day that He comes to you or to I. That's not necessarily the day that He came to the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2 when He said, I'm going to come quickly. Or the church in Laodicea. Or the church in Smyrna. All those seven churches He promised that He would come to them soon, quickly. Now those churches don't exist today. So it couldn't mean quickly in a couple of thousand years because they're not there. It had to be quickly when they were in existence. See, Jesus has been coming and going for 2,000 years. And many times we miss Him because we haven't been expecting Him. Or we couldn't believe it could be Him. Because after all, He's not here because He needs to return someday. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight, and I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. This is the Apostle Paul speaking to his spiritual son near the end of his ministry and his life. He says, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. And we know in the, the series of the nets that we've gone through that the first is the believer's foundation. And I look at the foundation as a representation. We can see it in Scripture in light of communion. That when we become a believer, then we are able to partake of the communion of the Lord Jesus. That we have partaken of His body and His blood in the spiritual sense, and then now as we come together in unity with one another, we show forth the unity of the body. We are many members, but we are one body. We are many members, but we are one bread. And so the communion is a representation of the believerhood that we all share. Then there's the discipleship, that we want to become believers and then disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, they will know that you are my disciples because of your love one towards another. So love is given freely, not expecting anything in return. But Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciples because of your love one towards another. So when we come to the place where I give freely and you give freely, then they'll know we're disciples. There's a kingdom level of grace that we move into when we freely give, but we also are freely receiving. And love does not require reciprocity, but the unity demands it. 
So I see the level of discipleship is manifested in the tithes and the offerings. That we give not because we have to, but because we are able to. And we come to a level of maturity where we're not just part of the body, but we're also giving freely. We've moved up to another level. And here the Apostle Paul, I believe, gives us the example of that stewardship level. The steward level is where that person has been set free from the duty that they have to the master, but they return to work for him and say, Lord, I've served my time, but yet you've been so good to me that I want to serve you for my life. And it says that the master will take him and bore his ear to the door, put an earring in his ear, a symbol of ownership now, that he has by his own freedom given up his freedom. That's the level of stewardship that we come to if we're faithful as believers, then disciples. And when the Apostle Paul said, I'm being poured out as a drink offering, that's that level. When we have served the Master because we so desire to, not because we have to, because we've been set free. We've served our time, but we've come back and willingly give our all. Then we've come to the place of the highest offering that we can give. We're pouring out our own lives as a drink offering to Him. That's what the Apostle was saying here. He finished his race. He kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who love his appearing. Now that's the verse that I was given and told that there were rewards for those who had the hope of his return. Because... To us, His appearing was the return. But it doesn't say the return. So it doesn't mean the return. It says appearing. It means appearing. It does say there's a crown of righteousness. And the Lord will give it to us. On what day? On the day that He judges us, right? When He judges us to give us rewards. And He's going to give it to all those who have loved His appearing. Is loving His appearing standing here and gazing into heaven? If that's what it was to love His appearing and to look for His appearing, then those two men that came in white apparel would have said, you guys are doing good. But they didn't. They said, what are you doing this for? Get busy obeying the instructions that you've been given. What did Jesus say? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If we keep his commandments, we'll be rewarded. If we love his appearing, we will then be able to be faithful to keep his commandments. What is it to love his appearing? The great hope is not in the day of his appearing, but in what you have laid up for the day of his appearing. The devil believes that the Lord will come and he'll not be rewarded on that day. The hope of eternity is not a desire for Christ to gather together His saints, nor is it the knowledge and the belief that He will, nor is it the anticipation that He may come at any moment. It is having a belief that you will spend forever and eternity with the Lord so vital in your heart that you are willing to base your life on this reality and lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven and not upon earth. This is the hope of eternity. 
Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 tells us to pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. It's not talking about seeing the Lord on Judgment Day. It's not talking about seeing the Lord after He gathers us together. There will be no question then. Why do we need holiness then? We will be holy as He is holy. We see Him through a glass darkly now, but then we'll see Him face to face. What could it be speaking of in Hebrews? To pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Remember, holiness is not just an absence of sin. Holiness is the presence of obedience. When we're obedient, we're showing forth the love of God. When we are obedient, we have placed ourselves in a position where the Lord may appear to us. The Lord is not absent, but the Lord is present. He is presently available. He said that He was going to come at times and we wouldn't recognize Him but that we could discern His presence. The Holy Spirit will prepare the way and prepare us to receive Him. The Holy Spirit will teach us the things that the Lord desires so that we can accomplish them and prepare that place that He would love to inhabit. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. The Apostle said, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ. Christ Jesus, that you are enriched in everything by Him in all utterance and knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. Once I was seeking the Lord, and I wanted to understand how was it that the early church walked in such power? And how was it that the early apostles and prophets and evangelists could go into places where people were wholly given over to idolatry? And in a short time, convert people in such a way that even if they were left to themselves without leaders, that a church would be established. And that many times signs, wonders, and miracles would be done. That often they would get rid of all the things of the world and the idols and things that had stood between them and the one true God. And that would keep them from receiving the fullness of all His promises and burn them, regardless of the cost. And yet, sometimes today, we don't see this type of commitment. We see people playing with Christianity year after year after year and never really walking in the power and the glory that's available. And one thing he showed me, I don't believe it's the whole answer, but I believe it's a part of the answer. What he showed me was that in the early church, when they were converted, then they were confirmed unto the Lord. And when we truly are confirmed, we are really placed in His hand. And we have placed our hearts and our lives in such a way that we're totally trusting in Him. It's the same word that's used for Jesus' spirit when it says that Jesus was on the cross and it says He gave up the ghost. He said, Father, into Your hand I commend, that's the word, my spirit. They were able to do something in the early church to the point that people's hearts and lives and souls were that tight in the Lord's hand. So they didn't go back to the world. I believe that in our day and time, we can relearn of the Spirit how 
we also may bring people to that type of relationship with the Lord. But I don't believe we can ever get to that place where our hearts and lives and souls are confirmed to the Lord if we do not believe that our Lord can come at any time. If we believe that He's gone and we're Lordless, I don't think we'll ever see the church confirmed in such a way as they were in the book of Acts. Nor will we walk in the power and deliverance from the things of the world as I know we are called to walk. In verse 7, So that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. If we're confirmed to Him, we won't come short in our gifts. We won't be desiring to walk in more power because we'll have the power that He's given to us, that He's promised us, and that He's placed within us. And we're eagerly waiting for the revelation. That's the word apocalypsis. We get our word apocalypse from it. The book of Revelation is called Revelation. That's the word, apocalypse. The apocalypse of John, the revelation of John. It's also, the word could be translated unveiling. The revelation of our Lord Jesus is to desire the unveiling of our Lord Jesus Christ to see Him more clearly, to understand Him more fully, to see more of His heart, to have more of who He is discovered to us. That's apocalypse. That you come short, no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is that day? Remember in the book of Revelation, John said, I was with the Lord on the Lord's day. That's a day that's future. He was prophesying that day. It's a day of judgment. It's a day when he comes and brings down the judgment that people have laid up for themselves, whether good or whether evil. He is saying that it's the Lord Jesus and through His unveiling that we can be confirmed that we would be blameless in that day. I don't know about you, but I strongly desire to be blameless in that day. I strongly desire to walk now and to be perfected and be raised up into all things unto Him who is the head, Christ Jesus. I strongly desire now to have my Lord Jesus unveiled to me. Not to wait for that day. Not to stand around here wishing for that day. Not to wonder when it's going to come and it will be so much easier and I won't have to work so hard. But I desire it now to the point that I'm willing to be poured out as a drink offering. If that's what it takes for me to be confirmed into His Spirit, if that's what it takes for me to see Him face to face now, even though I could not receive the fullness, why can I not at least receive more than what we see available or what we've been promised by so many? It is available. We can be so tight in His hand, confirmed to Him just by the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. We can be so tight in His hand, even as He was tight in His Father's hand. Acts 17, 31, Because He has appointed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom He has ordained, He has given assurance of this to all by raising Him from the dead. You and I have been given a promise when Jesus got up from the dead that that same Jesus was going to judge the quick and the dead. Yet, we can be confirmed to Him now so that we can be blameless on that day. We can go to Him through the Holy Spirit and allow Him to sort through the works that we're doing. We 
can't go to him with good works. We have to go to him with God works. Just doing good things isn't good enough. We've got to do his things. Why do we want to wait until judgment day to judge the things that we're doing? By being confirmed to him now, by being close to him now, by having him unveiled to us as we can receive it, we will become more and more like him so that we can receive the full reward that we're called to receive. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1 says, It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. He is saying with a surety, I will come to visions and unveilings, apocalypses of the Lord. He says this is guaranteed. Why? Because he was a servant. He was a bond servant of the Lord. He knew that the Lord would come to him. He knew without a shadow of a doubt that the Lord would reveal things to him and most importantly would reveal things about himself to the apostle. If we could be assured of that, if we understood that the Lord not only could come and reveal himself to us, wouldn't we then be more likely to stand firm? Wouldn't we then be more likely to be faithful in that which he's called us? If we were looking forward to that day and we don't know when that day is, we stumble, we fall, we get back up. Oh, well, I'll get back you know, in, in the race again before he comes. But if you understood that he could come today to you, if you understood that today he would reveal more of himself to you, if you understood that today he would give you visions and revelations of himself to help you stand forward, to help you stand strong, perhaps then you could say, as the apostle does in verse 12, truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance and signs, wonders, and mighty deeds. He was able to persevere because he had the face of the Lord before him. He was able to persevere because he knew he couldn't go into any tribulation that the Lord couldn't come and stand by his side. And he knew that wasn't just a figure of speech but that the Lord himself would not allow him to undergo any torment or any torture or any uh, trial on this earth that he himself hadn't been through it and would go through it again with him and therefore he was able to endure and signs followed. In Acts chapter 23 verse 11, it says, But the following night the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul. For as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness in Rome. That was the Lord Jesus that stood beside him, that strengthened him. That wasn't a figure of speech. That was the Lord Jesus. He came to him. The Lord has been coming to his church. The Lord will continue to come to his church. There is a day when he'll gather the whole church at once. But that is ahead. Now he can come to us. We've been missing him because we didn't know it was him. He desires to come to us even more than we desire to go to him. He desires to unveil himself to us even more than we desire to see his face. He knows that if he unveiled himself totally, we couldn't handle it. He knows that he has to prepare us. 
and get us ready so that we can see more of him, so we can receive more of him. But it's worth it. And if you understand that this is available, it could be for you tonight, it could be for you tomorrow, that you will stand more firm. You will put more effort into your walk with Him. You will put into your life with Him so much more than you would if you were investing for something that you're only going to receive as a retirement benefit. This is not a retirement we're talking about. This is life with Him, which began on the day that you were born again, and from that day till now, He has been trying to come to you to lead you to the Father. The Spirit is put in you to prepare you for this. Galatians chapter 1, verse 12 says, For I neither received it of man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ, the unveiling of of the Lord Jesus Christ. The revelations that Paul had that he built the church upon, they were Jesus. So they were strong. They came by unveiling of Jesus Christ. If we today as a church would build upon Jesus, it would be a strong building. When the rains come, it would stand. When the winds come, it would not shake. It would be Jesus. Ephesians 3.3 says, How that by revelation, unveiling, He made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already. And Ephesians 1.17, That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Give to you the spirit of wisdom and unveiling in the knowledge of Him. We have the Spirit of God. If we truly were wise, wouldn't we want it to unveil the Lord Jesus Christ to us? Now, there's a day when we're all going to see Him face to face. That's a guarantee. We don't have to wait. How hungry are we for Him? How much do we desire to see His face? I believe there are rewards that will come to those that love His appearing. But it's not loving that day that He will return because He is presently available now. It's loving His appearing to the point that we will live today knowing that we spend eternity with Him and that eternal day begins today. That's what it is to love His appearing. There's a day coming when the Lord will come. When He will be revealed with His mighty angels from heaven. And in that day, we'll all be with Him. But I believe that the Scripture teaches us that the position that He is able to trust us with at that day and what we will be able to be assigned to do in His household then is what we are being prepared to do now. If we truly love the day of His appearing, we will be willing to put forth the effort today that we would allow Him to reveal to us, to unveil to us His heart's desire for us. And we will be prepared in that day, and we will receive a full reward, and we will not only have now, but we will have to give then, because we will have prepared and allowed Him to work, and allowed Him to show Himself to us, and allowed Him to walk with us and talk with us, and stand by our side in in our time of need, so that we will be able to understand even more so what He has given to us, and what great calling He has called us to, because there is so much more great 
greatness available to us in this Christian walk than we have ever seen because we have not understood that the Lord is here to teach us. Amen.